You know, when we talk about Christmas and the reality of what that means, God coming to us, the amazing thing about that is the state that we were in when He chose to do so. That idea kind of sets the stage for what I want to talk to you about this morning because I want to talk to you about God's choice to express Himself. Not just God's choice to express Himself, but God's choice to express Himself to men. What does it mean when we talk about the idea of expressing ourselves as people? Well, it means that we are revealing our feelings, our thoughts, our ideas, our ideals through many different outlets like speech, writing, art, the way we respond, the way we behave. We express ourselves through the clothes that we wear. We express ourselves by the hairstyle that we adopt. And it can really be a beautiful thing when a person opens up their heart and allows others to look and see what's going on inside of them as they express themselves through many different outlets. So the idea behind self-expression is my thoughts and my feelings being made known. I'm doing. I'm showing. I'm articulating. I'm displaying. I guess what I'm trying to say is, in order to express myself, I must do something. Now that's where God is a little bit different than us. Because God can express Himself simply by introducing Himself. If it's a beautiful thing for a person, or if it can be a beautiful thing, emphasize that word can, if it can be a beautiful thing for a person to express themselves, how much more beautiful and how much more consistent is it when God chooses to express Himself? But He expresses Himself simply by introducing Himself. Now, an example of that is in Leviticus 18.5. God has given instruction to His people, and He follows that instruction through with this declaration. I am the Lord. Now, the Hebrew rendering for that Scripture is, it is I myself the Lord. Now, if I were to stand before you and I were to say, hey, it is me, it is moon, there would be a couple of very legitimate responses to that. First would be, who cares? Secondly would be, what does who you are have to do with the details of my life? But when God makes the declaration, it is I myself, it is God, His identity alone encapsulates all that He is and all that He does. His identity alone highlights His attributes, and not just His attributes, but His attributes that are indeed relevant to the details of our lives. We need but hear His name, and we are overwhelmed by His person, and we need no external aid or outward expressions from Him to validate or confirm the beauty, the glory, and the majesty of who He is. Does God express Himself? Absolutely. I am the Lord who delivered you out of the bondage of Egypt. But let me suggest this. It is solely and sheerly because of grace that He does so. He is not obligated to express Himself. He is obligated to make a declaration. The declaration is enough for us. Solely grace that He expresses Himself to us. That's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about a couple of ways that God graciously expresses Himself to us. God graciously expresses Himself to us for our good, and He consciously expresses Himself to us 
for His glory. Let's look at John chapter 1, please. We are going to begin our journey, a new journey, through the Gospel of John. And we have felt that it would serve us well as a body to rally around the Gospel. And our prayer is that we will spend approximately, we're hoping, a year or so in the Gospel of John, give or take a few weeks. But but that's the goal, and we pray that that will serve us very well. Today we're going to read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And let's pay attention to how God is choosing to express Himself to us. And prayerfully, we're going to glean some thoughts to carry into the Christmas season. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. We're speaking of Christ. Yet the world did not know him. He, Christ, came to his own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, how? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Let's pray. Father, we we do come to You this morning with thankfulness in our hearts, God, and... Father, with a full awareness, God, of our humanity. We read this passage of Scripture, Father, and and God, we are, as Your people, we're amazed. We're, We're taken aback that, God, You would choose to express Yourself this way to Your people. God, we, we expect, we expect people to reveal themselves to those that would embrace them, but God, you, you made a different choice. You chose to express yourself and reveal yourself to a people, God, who, who retreated from you. People who were in darkness and loved darkness. People like us. You did this for us. God, orient us to that reality today. We need to to be refreshed and renewed by that truth again this morning, Lord. As we consider You, as we think of You, as we discover You, as You express Yourself to us, and we see what it really is that defines You. So I pray this morning that the essence of who You are. God is love. I pray that would be real to us. And Lord, it's going to mean that You would make that happen, that You would reveal it. So this morning, 
Lord, we pray for clarity of speech. We pray for clarity of mind. We pray that, God, You would convey what You desire to convey, that we would glean what You desire for us to glean, that we would apply what You desire for us to apply. To apply. That, Lord, we would be convicted in the areas that may prevent us from intimate exchange with You. So, we, we are at Your mercy. And we're thankful for that and ask that You would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to pull three truths out of this passage. Three ideas. The first is God expressing Himself through His only Son. The second is God expressing Himself through many sons. And then lastly, I want to talk about the idea of God expressing Himself through much grace. Let's talk a little bit about the idea of God expressing Himself through His only Son. John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, speaking of Christ, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, Christ. And without Him, Christ was nothing, was not anything made that was made. There is a great deal of importance and a great deal of emphasis placed usually on the beginnings of something. That's why we have a prologue, for example. A prologue highlights a beginning or the openings of a book. Or it can also serve as an introductory piece to a play or to a musical composition. But a prologue or a beginning, it has a very distinct purpose. And the distinct purpose is to establish a context and then to draw the spectator or draw the listener into that context so that they would be further excited and further anticipate what is yet to come. As a matter of fact, dating back to the Greek people, a prologue determined the success of a play or a drama. It is said that a prologue was a brief romance to determine if the spectator would engage in a further love affair with the drama itself. Each gospel writer has a very distinct purpose. Very distinct purpose. Matthew is talking to a Hebrew audience as he speaks about Christ who is the Son of David and who will ever, forever, set up on the throne of Israel. Mark speaks to a Gentile audience as he speaks about Christ who is a suffering servant who will give His life as a ransom for many, as many as who will believe. Luke is, although he is writing to an individual, Theophilus, I'm sure that he has a much broader range of audience in mind as he speaks about Christ as the Son of Man emphasizing His perfect humanity. John is the author of this Gospel even though he doesn't immediately or initially identify himself. He is an aged man under the influence of the Holy Spirit as his pen hits the paper and he is being reminded of the distinctives of the person of Jesus Christ. He is being reminded of the Savior that he loves. The Savior that loved him. He's being reminded of a relationship that reciprocated love back and forth to each other and he is being reminded and wants us to know the distinct purpose of Christ. And we find that distinct purpose in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. When John says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but, this is the purpose of the Gospel, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. In other words, John is an evangelistic author. And John wants us to know that it will be a revelation of God that leads men to eternal life. But we have to understand this. 
We have to understand this. And let me tell you why we have to understand this. I believe that it was Tozer who stated that what we need as the people of God more than anything is revival. But it's not a revival that's going to stem from mystic experience. It's going to be a revival that takes place in the hearts of men based upon a full awareness and orientation to the person of God. That's why we need to know this. We need to understand that this type of revelation of God that leads to eternal life can only come from God. Therefore, John writes of Christ as God. John writes of Christ who is God the Son and the purpose of God the Son is to speak and to communicate God the Father. That's the purpose of the Word. That's the purpose of words. To communicate clearly. And that's why John's prologue begins where it does in the beginning. John says it this way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. John, just like Moses, begins in the beginning. Yet, we need to point out that there's a very intentional difference between the two. Moses says in Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John says in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word. You see, for Moses, the beginning was God. But then there's an immediate thrust forward into human history. Whereas for John, the beginning was God as well, but there's an immediate emphasis on what preceded human history. There's an immediate emphasis on who the person of Christ is. I believe that it's His way of saying, and I believe we need to know it in order to get our hearts oriented. See, we need to have our hearts oriented, and this is true for the sinner or the saint. In order for that revival to begin to take place in our hearts, we have to be oriented to the full expression of God through the Son. And in order to have a full expression of God through the Son, through the person of Jesus Christ, we have to know that the Son is co-eternal. We have to know that the Son is co-equal. John says, in the beginning was the Word. We have to know that before time began and before creation began, Jesus already was. In the beginning was the Word. The word was is a verb that denotes continuous action. In other words, Christ was continually in existence before the beginnings of anything. He continually was. He, he continually existed. But not only that. Not only in the beginning Christ already was, but in the beginning Christ already was with God. So when John says the Word was with God, that means so much more than just being in the presence of. It means that Christ was oriented to the Father. It means that His attentions were oriented to the Father. It means that His affections were oriented and directed to the Father. It means face to face. And it gives us the imagery of two people facing one another, exchanging intimately with each other. So between God the Father and between God the Son, there is this exchanging before time began. There is this exchanging and reciprocating of joy. There is exchanging and reciprocating of emotions. Completion. Wholeness. Love. Love to the point that there is absolutely nothing lacking. Before time began, God the Son and God the Father are engaged in a very serious, intimate, deep love affair with one another. Jesus makes it very clear when He walked on the earth that that love affair existed, didn't He? In John 10.17, for example, He says, For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life that I may take it up again. John 14.31, He says, But I do as the Father has commanded Me, 
so that the world may know that I love the Father. So Jesus is making it clear that there is an exchanging and a reciprocating taking place between Him and the Father. The Father loves me. I reciprocate that back and I love the Father. But the glorious thing about the reality is He makes it ever so clear when that love relationship ultimately began when He says in John 17.24, Father, You loved Me before the foundation of the world. That's when the love affair began. Something really begins to happen, doesn't it? When we find ourselves committed to exchanging and reciprocating affection, our whole contentment, purpose, love, our being, something really begins to happen when we sit at the feet of the Savior and we reciprocate emotions and love back and forth to Him, doesn't it? Everything changes. It's like this intimacy with the Savior is the core and everything that we do is a spoke that stems off of that core and it affects and invades every area of our life. It affects our thoughts. It affects our marriages. It affects the way we parent. And it even affects, yes, beloved, even our failures. The convictions that we feel that come from our sinful behavior, that conviction itself is linked back to the reality that there's a central being in our lives and He is the Savior. That means something. Things begin to happen and things begin to change when we begin to exchange ourselves with the person of of God. It did so for the Savior and it does so for us. It changes the way we express ourselves. I think that's why we have so much respect and admiration for such men as Lewis and Tolkien and Chesterton. It's not just because they're literary genius or their literary capabilities. It's because their expressions are influenced by something central in their lives. Their, their, their expressions are influenced by, and yet at the same time, tamed by the person of Christ. Their expressions are influenced by the Savior, tamed by the Savior, work within the framework of the Savior, which means they're free to discover worlds and languages and go to different countries, all linking back to the centrality of a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. Listen, self-expression may need to have its place in our lives, but listen, it will always be policed by our passion for Christ if passion for Christ is what is defining us. And I believe that is why John refers to the Savior as the Word. Or the logos, Greek word for word. And I want to suggest this morning that it is a term of passion that will dictate how Christ expresses Himself. The word, word, the word logos, it has a two-part meaning. And the first is thought. It first means thought. Secondly, it means an utterance or expression of that thought. So it's a thought and it's expressed through word and when necessary, it is expressed through deed. What do we need to learn from that? What do we, as the people of God, need to learn from that? We're not the word. As a matter of fact, John is very emphatic that John the Baptist, he's not the light, but he's a witness to the light. John elsewhere is called a voice of one who's alone in the wilderness. He's not the Word, but he's a voice to the Word. So what does that mean for us? We're not the Word, but we are to be witnesses to the Word, and we are to be a voice to the Word. So what does that mean for us? I think that that means that we are to clearly express the love of God. I believe that God's expression of Himself through His Son speaks volumes to us regarding the fact that God desires to communicate with us with the utmost of clarity. There could have been a thousand different ways that God could have expressed Himself and expressed His love to us. 
There could have been a multitude of ways. But God chose for Christ to be the conduit for His expressions toward man. I know of nothing that relays God's love. I know of nothing that relays God's purposes for us. His affection for us. His eternal plan for us. His joy in us. I know of nothing that relays God's love better than the expression of Himself through His Son as seen at the cross. So when John says that Jesus is the Word or the Logos, what he's saying is Jesus is the speech and Jesus is the deed behind the thoughts of God in all matters of the kingdom of God. Spiritual life, salvation, the gospel, the cross, all matters of grace. Christ Christ is the action behind the thoughts of God. And I think there's another application for us when we consider that Christ is the Word or the Logos. And I think the application for us is that we are to, as best as we humanly can, try to understand the intention of God, which we're going to look at in more detail in just a second. I want to suggest something this morning. I want to suggest that God's thoughts are ultimately God's purposes and ultimately will work themselves out as God's purposes. See, God's thoughts, they don't necessarily mean that they're just an expression of His ideas. So when God thinks, it's not just giving us a little bit of insight into His mind to see how the mind of God works. When God thinks, He is getting ready to express His intentions. My thoughts can be expressions of things that I may hope happen, God's thoughts are expressions of what He will do. God's thoughts are expressions of what will happen. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Now the Hebrew word for thoughts means thoughts. But it also means not just thoughts, but it means the inventions and the intentions that spring forth from those thoughts. So God rightly says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, therefore my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, therefore necessarily my ways are higher than your ways. David said in Psalm 45, you have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare to you. God's thoughts are always directly tied to what God does. So when God says, or when John says, or when we say that God is expressing Himself through His Son, what we're ultimately saying is that God's thoughts are being brought into existence through the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because His thoughts are His counsel. His thoughts will stand forever and His thoughts will come to pass. And Christ clearly understood the Father's intention. See, when we talk about trying to understand what the intentions of the Father are, that dictates how we function in relation to being a voice to the Word or a witness to the Word. And I think that John lays it out very clearly how God is expressing Himself. Not only through His only Son, but God is expressing Himself through many sons. And we need clarity on that, I think. Jesus is the only begotten Son, but it is because of the only begotten Son that many sons can be adopted. No son can be adopted unless there was the only begotten Son. So God is expressing Himself in many sons. Let's go back to verse 4, please. Let's read verses 4-13. through 13. John says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 
The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is the meaning of Christmas. He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. Emphasis on verse 12. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become what? Children. He gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There are certain terms that define the fallen world, and two come to mind immediately. One is death, and the other is darkness. Ephesians 2.1, for example, says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. 2 Corinthians 4.4 states, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There are certain people that fall into the category of needing life, and it's people who are dead. There are certain people that fall into the category of needing light, and it's people who reside and dwell in darkness. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah is prophesying over his son John, but what he exposes is really the condition of the people, all people, in verses 76 through 79, when he says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Verse 79 is the emphasis. He he has come, John is coming to pave a way for God to reveal Himself to do this, to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death. It's one thing to be in darkness walking. It's another thing to be in the darkness running because that might suggest that I am a person who's aware of darkness and I'm walking or running to try to get out of darkness. But for a person to sit in darkness is a very loud statement. It means that they have made peace with the darkness that surrounds them and they have chosen to make darkness their dwelling place. Jesus comes as an expression of life, life that gives light to men. And in that order, look at verse 4, and the life was the light of men. Life, He gives life, life becomes light, so men can now see. That's why I said to Nicodemus in John 3.3, unless one is born again, there's the life, he cannot see, there's the light, the kingdom of God. Isn't that really, guys, isn't that really the testimony of our lives? Isn't it really the testimony of our lives when you think about who we were before Christ? Weren't we not only in darkness, but weren't we sitting in the darkness? Weren't we dwelling in the darkness? Weren't we content with the darkness? It doesn't take long for me to reflect on my life before I met the Savior, before He revealed Himself to me, to realize that is the story of my life. I was the man who was saying, it's a woman's right to do whatever she wants to do. I'm the man that's saying we can do whatever we choose to do as long as it pertains to us and it doesn't really affect and invade the lives of other people. And we can call that liberalism all we want, but it's really a vague form and a masked form of Satanism because it carries the idea that we can do what we want for ourselves, to ourselves, and it doesn't matter the chaos or the damage that it imposes on other people. And that, beloved, is the darkness that looms over us. That is the darkness that looms around us. We are a people before Christ, a people who are blinded to the gospel truth. 
that says your life is not your own. And the freedom that comes with that. And the joy and the liberty that comes with that. We are bombarded by false ideologies that we have the right to be the captain of our own ship, the master of our own souls, as long as it doesn't invade other people's lives. That's the condition of the world in which we live. Now, the beautiful and glorious and miraculous thing is this. Yet, in that fallen condition, in this fragile condition where we are surrounded by darkness, from the very beginning was the thought and the intention of God that He would have spiritual sons. He predetermined it before the foundations of the world. We're not intimidated by the darkness because God has predetermined that while we're in the darkness, He will call many sons to glory while they reside in the darkness. While they, while they sit in the darkness. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> in the beginning, there's an exchange. The Father and the Son, they're reciprocating love, affection, joy, contentment. And part of that reciprocation is there will be many sons that are called into glory. Look at verse 13. Who were born. You've got to pay attention to how they were born. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. God thought, God predetermined before the foundations of the world, I will have sons. But we have to go backward to verse 12 to see how spiritual sonship actually comes into being. Verse 12, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Remember what the purpose of the Word is. The purpose of the Word is to bring into effect the thoughts of God. God God chooses Christ clothes because both are taking the initiative. God is taking the initiative by choosing. Christ is taking the initiative by giving man the power, the authority, and the right to be a child of God. Not just through God's thoughts verbally, but through God, but through His actions, He is bringing what God has determined into being. Hebrews 2, 10, 11 says, For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, speaking of Christ, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. So, so Christ is giving authority to become a child of God through His work at the cross. And He also is giving power and authority to be sanctified as we continue to follow the person of God. That, beloved, is the central theme of the Gospel. In a dark world, in dark places, God is calling many sons to glory. That's the theme of the Gospel. That's the theme of John's Gospel. That is the theme of the Bible. God is expressing Himself by doing in men what men would not do on their own. He's bringing men out of darkness into His presence and bringing many sons to glory. And that's a grand expression. Because that did not have its beginnings when we see Jesus born in a manger in Bethlehem, that idea had its beginnings from the very beginning. 2 Timothy 1.9 He who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus when? Before the world Began Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised us before the world began. 
Christ is a very full expression of God the Father. But the, but the Father has determined to bring many sons to glory and to have a further expression of Himself in humanity called the local church. We are called to be expressions of the Father in this place. How can that happen? Lastly, quickly. I want us to note that in this prologue that John lays out before us, which is said to have been in the forefront of the eyes of the saints of the early church at all times, this beautiful, glorious, wonderful truth, I want us to note that God is expressing Himself through much grace. Let's go back to verse 14 through 18. Let's read that. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me, because He was before Me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. The Word became flesh. Let's remember who the Word is. Who is the Word? Word is Christ. But what does John also say? The Word was with God, which means separate from God, Christ. But he also says that the Word was God. So let's remember... Let's remember who became flesh. God Himself became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt in the Greek means that He set up a tent. God came and He set up a tent among us. Now that spoke volumes to God's people. Because part of their ancestry and the beauty of their ancestry was that God often tabernacled with them. They set up a tent, and what did that represent? God is present. God is among us. So for John to say, God God has became flesh and dwelt among us, He has set up a tent with us and among us, it's John's way of saying, look, He's back. Christ is back. He has come back to be with us. And that's an ongoing dwelling I want to encourage you. Because in Revelation 21.3, when the new heaven and the new earth is talked about, we're told in the Scripture, behold, the dwelling or the tent of God is with men. He will dwell. He will pitch His tent with them and they shall be His people. That's the message of Christmas. What do you think of? When you think of voluntarily, willingly, choosing to set your tent up among a group of people, what's the motive behind that? What am I saying about this group of people? I'm saying that, I'm saying I want to get to know them. I want to get close to them. I want them to know some things about me. I want there to be interaction between us. I want there to be an exchanging or a reciprocation of some things to take place between <laughs> to take place between us. Okay? That's that's what he's saying. Now let me tell you why that is so relevant to John as he as he lays out this gospel for us. In John in John's day, at John's moment, there are many philosophers and they're trying to define Christianity. They're trying to identify God and they're trying to define God. And one of the ways that they're doing that is they are saying that, yeah, God's a presence, but He's a distant presence. Yeah, God came and yes, I believe that He created the world and all that we see, everything's pretty complex. But then they leave it at that and say, but God kind of Kind of like the winding of a clock. He winded things into motion and then He withdrew Himself and retreated and everything's kind of now running on its own. And John comes along behind the philosophy of his day and says, listen, God is dwelling 
among us. He has come to pitch a tent among us. He has come to pitch a tent among His people to be seen and to be known. But there's another reason that God has determined the need to pitch a tent among us, among His people. And it's because of our great need. We have a great need and none other than God Himself can reveal to us what that great need is. So God pitching a tent among us is not just Him being kind and saying, hey, I want to hang out with you a bit. It's His way of saying, you have a need that cannot be met otherwise. And what is that need? Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. What do all of these verses have in common that we need? Grace. We need Grace. God set up camp among us to give us grace. And let me tell you something. I believe that the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he knows our greatest need is grace. Verses 14. Let's, let's, let's go, let's go back and revisit verses 14 and 16. And let's take this idea of our great need of grace and try to make these verses a little more clear. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. John says, I've seen it. I'm an eyewitness to it. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How? Verse 16. For whom, or, or for from His fullness, which is better translated, because of. So John says, I've seen His glory. It's the glory of the only Son from the Father, and I've seen His glory because of what I have received. And what I have received is grace. If I did not receive grace, I will not see His glory. If I do not receive grace, I will not be a child of God. If I do not see His grace, I have no chance of being a godly person. If I do not see His grace... Excuse me. I will not overcome the sins that so easily entangle my life. If I do not see grace, I will not see His glory. Grace is our greatest need. God therefore says, we'll set up camp among you and give you what you need. That's the meaning of Christmas. I want to close with statement from William Austin called A Meditation for Christmas Day. This is what he says. I want to ask you if you would to bow your heads as I read this. <clears throat> yeah, I think I agree with Tozer. I think that our greatest need, starting point for revival in the heart, is just simply through a revisiting of the reality of who the person of God is. William Austin states, The name Word is most excellently given to our Savior. For it expresses His nature more than any other. Therefore, St. John, when he names the person in the Trinity, chooses rather to call Him Word than Son. For Word is a phrase more communicable than Son. Son hath only reference to the Father that begot Him, but Word may refer to Him that conceives it, to Him that speaks it, to that which is spoken by it, to the voice that is clad in it, and to the effects it raises in him that hears it. So Christ, as He is the Word, not only refers to His Father that begot Him, 
and from whom He comes forth, but to all the creatures that were made by Him, to the flesh that He took to clothe Him, and to the doctrine He brought and taught, and which lives yet in the hearts of all of them that obediently do hear it. He it is that is the Word. And any other prophet or preacher, He is but a voice. Word is an inward conception of the mind, and voice is but a sign of intention. St. John was but a sign, a voice, not worthy to untie the the shoe latchet of this Word. So my, my prayer for us, my encouragement to us would be this Christmas season, as it comes, as it's approaching quickly, rapidly, when it is custom for us, ironically, to give to other people, and, and, and I, I love that aspect of it. I would, I would desire that we would not just be reminded, but renewed and changed by a God who became flesh and dwelt and set up tent among us in order to give to us. And God, we are aware of our greatest need. And Lord, if if we would be here, if we would be present this day, God, and not be oriented to that greatest need, Lord, would you would you bring it to light? Would you give life so that so that we have light and can now see? Lord, would you would you reveal still our greatest need, God? And so, Father, we pay attention to You. We pay attention, God, to how You have chosen to express Yourself to men this, this time of year. Especially, at all times I pray, but, but now especially, God, as You have us here. Lord, may we ever be aware, may we ever be taken aback, may we ever be thankful, may we ever be joyful of the manner in which, God, You chose to express Yourself to us while we were in darkness. And I pray that right now, God, You would deliver those that You've called from the darkness. Give life that men can see. We're thankful, Father, to be together. We're thankful to celebrate You. And we we say... As Jason has sang this morning, we say thank you, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.